All right, we um, we had a little bit of a hiatus because of the holy days, and so we're back to the uh, series on the Corinthian letters. The title of today's is a little bit off in the bulletin. Should say freedom and self limitation. So you'll see what that's about in a minute. Uh, this Corinthian letter of Paul, he uh, begins in the first four chapters, confronting them about dividing up. Uh, disrupting the unity. One of his themes in the uh, text is that we are to be a community. We're to be unified in the Lord. Uh, He also addresses uh, other ways that they are uh, doing that as he talks uh, to them about some questions that they have. And so uh, we are in that response period uh, where we have talked about... um, Chapter 7, chapter 7 and 8 gave us some interesting things that I think he's still addressing. In chapter 7, he talks about uh, marriage and he addresses issues of fornication coming out of the Acts 15 passage. Then in chapter 8, he begins to talk about uh, idolatry. And um, a lot of people think that chapter 9 is separate. But I don't believe that's true. So let me remind you a little bit because it's been three weeks since we've talked about um, chapter 8 because 9 is connected to that. His principle in this talking about food sacrifice to idols, his principle is that knowledge causes arrogance, but love edifies the other. And so he gives guidelines regarding the freedom that comes with knowledge, says that we should be a little more humble about our knowledge. And he says that in the context of that, uh, that we should be aware of the issue of conscience. Ours and others. We're not to violate our conscience, and we're not to, but we are to accommodate the conscience of the weaker or the less informed uh, brother and the conscience of the non-believer. And that's really the guidelines that he's giving. The reason for that is because true defilement comes from the heart, not from the food or the external things. And therefore, the conscience is part of that heart, and it's uh, very important. So as we move now to chapter 9, a lot of people think he's changing subject. That he's either defending himself as an apostle, or he's going to talk about uh, payment for ministers. Um, I really think that's incorrect. He does address both of those issues. But he's making them an example of what could be called the liberty of conscience. Now, as Baptists, liberty of conscience is one of our major tenets. Uh, The idea that I should be free to follow God following my conscience. Uh, Paul is not arguing for the expansion of that in this rugged and radical, ideal, uh, individualistic content that you and I live in. Because then it becomes an entitlement. I can follow my liberty of conscience. doesn't bother me. Well, that's that knowledge that Paul says is puffing up or causing arrogance. So he's really talking about a limitation on freedom and on the liberty of conscience in particular. And so uh, being free to follow your conscience is important for Baptists. But Paul's not 
really addressing its expansion or its establishment. He's trying to pull it back a little bit. And we'll see that that's his principle from chapter 8 as it as it's given examples in chapter 9. So turn with me to chapter 9 of First um, uh, Corinthians. We'll start with the first two verses. This is why people think he's really going in this direction. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? He means literally seen him in his resurrected state. And are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. First thing Paul does here, as he's trying to give them an example, is he's going to use himself. So he establishes his credentials. I'm an apostle. I've seen the Lord. Uh, I'm free. I'm in this condition of spiritual maturity and knowledge. So I ought to be able to function from that standpoint. So he's going to use himself as an example. And he says, if I'm not an apostle to others, I certainly am to you Corinthians, because I'm the one who brought the gospel here and started the congregation. So that's his foundational point. He's going to make himself the example of self-limitation in the context of freedom. So now we pick up at verse 3 through verse 6. He says, My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, or Peter? Or do only Barnabas and I not have the right to refrain from working? Now, Paul's going to use himself as an example of self-limitation where he is free and entitled, if you will. And so he's now saying, I'm an apostle, I am to you. Don't I have the power to have my food and my drink taken care of by the congregation? Don't I have the ability, as I travel from church to church, to take a wife with me? Like all of the other apostles, which indicates they were married, and the brothers of our Lord, the, the, the actual brothers of Jesus, and uh, Peter himself. Uh, so I always have people say, well, only Peter was married. No, Paul makes it clear they were all married. Marriage was the biblical norm, is the biblical norm, it's just no longer the Christian norm. Okay, So that's... He's establishing that. And wherever these guys go with their wives, as they minister in the churches, they would be taken care of financially and and cared for in that way. But there's an exception. That exception is Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas are doing something different. And Paul's going to explain that up against this background So that they will understand this idea of limiting what you can do for the sake of another's conscience. That's his point. So, his argument here should be obvious to the Corinthians. The normal practice in Judaism and emerging Christianity was to take care of those who ministered to you. 
This care was based on the care of the Levites in the Torah. You recall in the Torah when you would eat from your tithe, you were to include the Levite who has no inheritance. So in other words, you were to make sure that your tithe not only fed you and your family at worship, but also fed the Levites who were the the uh, ministers, if you will, of the of the temple in the priesthood. Then he's, it's also um, consistent with the prophets, not just the Torah, the prophets. You recall Elijah, uh, who had uh, gone to the widow and told her to feed. She was gonna she was gonna eat and die, and he said, "Feed me first. She did, and then God continued to uh, fill the grain and the oil. And she then set up a room for him. And in the setting up of the room, whenever he was in town, he had a place to stay and she would feed him. That became known as the prophet's chamber in tradition. And so both the, both the law and the prophets had this notion of taking care of God's people when they come to minister to you. That there was an obli- obligation in some sense uh, to do that. And it was the normal expectation. Now, with that in mind, I want you to look at a statement in the Gospels, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10. Matthew, chapter 10. Jesus is uh, sending out his disciples on kind of a test run of uh, ministry, and he will later send out 70 in a similar way, and his teachings are not only about this immediate trip, but about the long-term ministry structure. I'm not going to read the part where he names his disciples. You already know that part. We're going to pick it up at verse 11. So he says to them that they are to minister, and he says, don't acquire gold or silver or money or a bag, for the worker is, the worker is worthy of his support. Then in verse 11 he says, here's how this works. Whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it, and stay at his house until you leave that city. As you enter the house, give it your greeting. If the house is worthy, give it your blessing of peace. But if it is not worthy, take back your blessing of peace. Whoever does not receive you nor heed your words, as you go out to that city or that house, shake the dust off your feet. I tell you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in that day, um, uh, in the day of judgment, than for that city. Then he warns them about persecution that's going to happen. And then in verse 40 of this verse, of this chapter, he says, The one who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, I tell you, he will not lose his reward. Now, what Jesus is saying is that as people minister, and in those days there were kind of traveling ministers and there were local uh, ministers in the congregation. Those who traveled uh, would be cared for when they came. And an early document, the Dita K, tells us that if they invite you to have a party, the Lord wants us to have a party. If they eat from it, they're a false prophet. Okay, why? Why are they asking you to have a party? 
so they can eat, right? You feed them, but if they want more and they create it as ministry, they're a false prophet. When they leave, you give them enough to get to their next place, that's it. If they stay longer than three days, they're a false prophet. In other words, a minister whose goal is income is a false prophet. Okay? So, there's a limitation on this process. The idea is that they are to be given their daily needs. Okay? Uh, and not to build up big purses in that sense. The person who does that, the person who gives to them, will be given the same reward as them for their ministry. So if you give to a good prophet, and he has a reward from God, you will share in that reward. If you give to a false prophet, when he gets his judgment, so will you. Okay? So we have to be careful who we're enabling, right? In that sense. That's the background of what Paul is talking about. So go back to 1 Corinthians, and we'll see what he does with it. Because, uh, again, people think he's trying to establish it. It was already established. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, Paul then continues. And here's what he says. Who at any time serves as a soldier as at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? In other words, he says... If you are doing something, that's generally where you get your living. That's his principle. He says, I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? So he now goes to Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. It is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much that we reap material things from you? So, Paul's establishing this standard approach, which apparently he and Barnabas are not following. Okay? But it's generally done. So, interesting verse. You shall not muzzle the ox as it threshes. Now, I know you guys are all city folks. Maybe uh, Trevor's not. Okay, let me tell you what an ox does. Okay? My grandfather had a farm. I know a little bit about these things. I've also done some study, right? So, the uh, threshing floor, they would take the grain and put it in, and they'd use a millstone. The millstone usually went around in a circle. And to make it go around in a circle, they took an ox and strapped the thing, and the ox simply did this. The ox had good job security, but the view was always the same, right? This is what he's doing. Occasionally, some of the grain would fall out onto the ground. And the Bible says, you don't muzzle the ox so he can't get to the grain that's there. That's it. Now, interesting verse to apply to ministers and pastors. 
Don't muzzle the ox. <laughs> Paul's saying he's not talking about oxes. He's talking about servants of the Lord who are to be able to have some of what they're producing in the congregation uh, for their own living. That's his point. Notice that the ox is not bagging it up and storing it somewhere. Right? He's got his daily needs covered. That's it. And if you know anything about the history of the church in ministry, ministers took a vow of poverty so that the amount that the church had to provide for them was minimal. And we had parsonages and other things that helped with that approach. We maintained that general attitude until the 60s when pastors became CEOs of corporations and started negotiating large salaries in some cases. So, Paul is addressing this from a biblical perspective. So now in verse 12, he's going to explain why he and Barnabas are doing something different and what the biblical principle of self-limitation for the benefit of others is so that they will understand. Again, he's not trying to get them to pay him more, right? If others share this right over you, do not we more. We're the founding pastors of your congregation. Nevertheless, we did not use this right <clears throat> but we endure all things so that we might cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Paul and Barnabas did not require the Corinthians to support them. It was their right to be supported by them, but they were concerned that that would create a hindrance to the development of the congregation having that financial burden. So, they took that right away from them. They self-limited in that sense. Now he goes on and he says, Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple? And those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar. So the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. There's nothing biblically wrong with the congregation providing the basic subsistence support for their ministers. That is the biblical model. I think we've gone way beyond that in many churches, but that is the biblical model. Now, the issue here is that Paul and Barnabas aren't doing that. Verse 15. I have used none of these things. And I am not writing these things so that it will be done in my case. So Paul's not saying, hey, by the way, why aren't you doing it? He had given that up and he gave that up for a good reason. Their benefit. Okay. When I read this, it altered my whole perception of ministry. I was, I was at a church. I was fully salaried. I was getting full benefits. I was doing all of that. I read this and I became 
focused on what Paul's issue was. That I believe is an important issue. So, he is arguing the principle. He's not arguing for his own income, nor am I. Okay? So, uh, he wants to make it clear that this is not a request for money or support. He's refused that demand because he's after a greater reward and a greater effect. I remember many, many, many years ago going over these passages with Rick Warren. Rick and I were on a committee together and uh, this was just before he started Saddleback Church. <clears throat> we were talking about these things. We had done some camp stuff together and other things together and we were both fairly young in ministry and trying to talk about this. And I, I said, I'm becoming convinced that there is a greater stewardship and a greater benefit that Paul got when you uh, work a job and minister, plus you can endure persecution better with that. And we talked about these and he said, I, I think you're right. I said, well, I'm going to start doing it. So what I do is as I would teach more classes, I would lower my salary at that church. And I kept doing that until I wasn't getting a salary from the church. Okay? I was getting a few of the benefits, but none of the salary. Uh, moving in that direction. I distinctly remember Rick telling me, I don't know how to do that. I'm planning a church. I don't know how to do that. I think you're right. There's something to that. But I don't know how to do that. And so I kept doing it. And every once in a while I'd talk to him and see him. And I'd say, yeah, I'm doing it more. I'm now at Cal Baptist full time. And we talked a little bit more about it. Then he wrote his book that went ballistic. Okay. Some 40 million copies, okay? Uh, maybe more now. There's usually about a dollar royalty for each copy. That's, that's pretty substantial. And what he did was, he set up a foundation, but he also paid back his church everything they ever paid him for a salary. And now is doing the same kind of thing. There are people who do this, not because they're great, but because they get what Paul's talking about. So I want to show you what Paul's talking about and why I think this is worth considering. Not saying everybody has to do it. I'm always accused of thinking everybody should do what I do. I don't think that. Okay, um, But I do think that we need to be aware of what this is about. So, what Paul says then is... Uh, I have used, verse 15, I have used none of this. I am not writing these things so it will be done in my case. For it would be better for me to die than to have any man make boast, make my boast an empty one. Now, this always reminds me of Abraham. You guys know the story of Abraham after he gets Lot back. The king of, of Sodom comes out and says... Hey, you're the man. You, you did great. Keep all the money. Keep all the spoils. Let me have the people back. I need to rebuild my kingdom. And Abraham says, you take it all. Because I'm not going to have anybody say, you made me rich. And then Melchizedek comes and says, you are blessed by God, Abraham. You're not great. God is great. Right? And Abraham pays tithes to Melchizedek. 
There's where that principle comes in. Okay? So Paul says, I don't want my boasting that I'm serving God to be cheapened by anybody who says you're in it for the money. And it's easy for that to happen because a lot of times pastors say, I'm being called to another church and the salary's higher. Very seldom do you hear a pastor say, I'm being called to another church and they can't afford me, but I'm going anyway. I hear that once in a while. I trust those guys. But I usually hear the other. Okay? He says, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a slave to all so that I might win more. So one of the reasons is, if I'm not a financial burden on people, I can affect them greater than if I'm a financial burden on them. So he says, to the Jews, I became a Jew. Now that's funny, because Paul's a Jew. What he means is, I am functioning within their context so that I can interact with them. So that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, interesting term, aren't the Jews under the law? Right, we get into all this. Take under the law an issue of those who have made a commitment or a vow and are now obligated at a deeper level. To those who are obligated at a deeper level, I acted as if I was under that even though I'm not under it. You get it? This guy's under a Nazarite vow. Paul's coming alongside him and he's going to act just like he's under that Nazarite vow even though he's not under the Nazarite vow. That's that conscience thing, remember? If the conscience is of the weaker person or the person under obligation, now I'm going to act at their level so that I'm not a burden to them in my freedom. Then he says... To those who are without the law, as without the law, though not being without the law of God, I'm not actually going to disobey the commandments, but those who don't know the commandments and have no knowledge of them, I will maintain my obedience without giving them fits. Okay? So if they're eating something non kosher, Paul's going to eat kosher, but he's going to eat with them. Not to create problems so that he can talk to them about the greatness of this God and not get tied up in all these little picky uni things, which we have a tendency to do. <clears throat> to the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. That's what he was talking about in the previous chapter. This guy thinks that idol is there, and therefore I'm going to accommodate his weakened conscience. I have become all things to all men, so that I might by all means save some. Notice that Paul is not saying, I'm going to act like everybody else, so that they'll think I'm cool, so that they'll accept Jesus. He says, I'm going to make sure that my behavior in my life does not interfere with my presentation of the gospel to them. That's being all things. He's not being relevant. He's coming alongside. Now having said that, 
He says, I do all things for the sake of the Gospels so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run that you may win. Now, here's a key. There are differences of reward in the kingdom. Jesus said, those who observe the commandments and teach others to do it will be great in the kingdom. Those who don't do the commandments and teach others not to do them will be least in the kingdom. There will be rewards based on uh, how well we build on that foundation that Paul talks about. Gold, silver, and precious stone, wood, hay, and stubble will be burned. There will be a distinction in the resurrection as to what our condition in the kingdom will be. Paul knows this. And he says, when you're in a race, you're in it to win it. Right? You're not in it to get a participation certificate. Unless you're a millennial American, right? The idea is, well, I was in there. I was there. Where did did you end up? I came in about a half an hour after everybody. Okay. Well, good you were in there. We're glad you're in the kingdom. But now we're in the kingdom. And that's what you have versus what everyone else has, right? So what Paul's saying is, I've quit deciding to make this world where I get everything. And I'm working to get things, treasures in the kingdom, right? That's his issue. And therefore, to uh, expand his ministry beyond those who could afford to reimburse him in the material way, he, he worked... Night and day. He says, I worked that I wasn't a burden to anybody. We worked days and night when we were... I robbed other churches, taking money from them so that I could minister to you. Paul's got this premise all through his writings. But what happens is, people go, and you know this if you've ever done anything. If you're the discounted person, people think you're not as good. Okay? So if I'm a consultant and I say to somebody... Uh, I'll, I'll come for 25 bucks an hour. They'll go, oh, I don't know if he's worth it. Right? If I say, I'm, uh, I'm 800 bucks an hour. I'll give you a discount of 500. Wow, that's really great. I'm saving 300 on somebody who's worth 800. Right? That's how people think. So what people were doing was discounting Paul. You're not much of a minister if you're not getting paid well. Right? And you're making tents. But the group that hung around Paul, Barnabas and uh, uh, the, uh, uh, Priscilla and Aquila, they were, they were more in this mindset. So, he goes on and says, Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control. That's self-limitation in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. Little wreath sitting on there. Okay, great job. But we are after an imperishable one. We're after the eternal one of the reward of God. Therefore, I run in such a way not to be without aim. Oh, I'm going to minister here. No, I'm going to minister. No, I'm going to minister over. Oh, this I'm called to do this now. Right? He said, I'm not doing that. I'm focused, I'm thoughtful, I'm careful, I'm, I'm intentional about my spiritual life and ministry direction. I box in a way not as beating the air. I'm practicing my judo. 
Okay, he's not doing that. He's coming in there correctly so that he's spiritually focused that when he needs to use that, it's there. I discipline my body and make it my slave. Self-control, which by the way is a fruit of the Spirit. So that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. I'm going to lead someone to the Lord. I'm going to raise them in these things and they're going to outdo me. Right? They're going to, they're going to believe it and do it. I'll never forget. I read a book on how to do church by uh, Bob Sosey. He was a professor at Talbot. Um, I read his book and I thought, he really has it. And so later I met him on the New American Standard Bible Translation Committee. He's one of the originals. I was in the 95 group and uh, he just passed away a, a, a year or so ago. We were hoping to get him back, but uh, he, he, he really understood this stuff about the church. And one day we were at lunch and I said something about what we do at the Disciple Center. And he said, you guys actually do that? And I said, yeah. He says, where'd you learn that? I said, well, I first saw it in your book and then saw it in the Bible. He said, you've read my book? I said, yeah, there's a lot of stuff there. You're doing what's in my book? I said, yeah. He says, my own students don't do what's in my book. Right? Now, the issue is, Paul says, I don't want to teach these things. And then you do them. And at the judgment, God will say, here's, here's how it works. God will say, now, for doing this. And I'll go, yeah, I taught that. It goes to Trevor. Because he was doing it. Right? That's what Paul's talking about. I don't want to preach and then be... Cast away. He doesn't mean not saved. He means cast away when the rewards are passed out in the kingdom. Wow. That will revolutionize the way you parent, the way you teach, the way you minister, the way you live your life. If you're living your life towards kingdom things, you're going to limit some things here for the sake of the kingdom. And you're going to focus on that because what you get here will be temporary and what you get there will be at least a thousand years. Nothing here will last a thousand years. Paul uses this to remind us that we have to think that way. That's why he said in the previous chapter, you're suing one another? Why don't you rather suffer wrong? Why don't you self-limit your entitlements for the sake of the kingdom and the unity of the body? Why don't you do that with regard to idols and food sacrifice? Why don't you think about the community and the kingdom and make that your focus and that your intent, even if it limits your freedom and isn't fully up to where your knowledge is? Why don't you do that for the sake of the unity of the body and the kingdom to come? I think it's a fantastic chapter. I think it's very seldom understood in the way that Paul was giving it. And he's going to go further in chapter 10, but I obviously don't have time for that, but I do have time for one thing. Here then is true freedom. To refuse one's entitlement, boy, this is anti-American, <laughs> to refuse one's entitlement for the sake of others, and to be free from the appearance of taking things, 
being all things to all for their benefit is true ministry and matches Christ. Paul encourages this attitude because we will receive a reward in the world to come rather than this one. And it should inform all of our behavior. And so Paul writes these words in Philippians chapter 2. I'll finish with these verses. You know them well. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit and intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Don't look on your own interests, but on the interests of others as well. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not re- consider equality with God something to be demonstrated. He emptied himself and took on the form of a bondservant. And being made in the likeness of men in his incarnation, found in the appearance of men, he humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death. Even death on a cross. He humbled himself in his deity. He humbled himself in his humanity. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus in the kingdom, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wow! What a principle! What an understanding. Now, I don't do it well. But my intent is to keep plugging away and practice it. Okay, I'm terrible at the piano. I won't get better if I don't practice. I'm not great at this mindset. I've done some things in that direction. I've caught this vision of what Paul's doing. I'm trying to do that. It's one of the reasons why I... I try to counsel without fees. I try to pastor without fees. I try to do that. I'm trying to do I'm not as good as Paul, and I'm, but I get the idea. And I'm going to keep struggling to do it until my last breath because I believe that there is a kingdom to come and there is a reward in that kingdom. And while I'll be glad to be in the kingdom by grace through faith, My early ministry was totally self-centered and it will burn like gas on a straw fire in the judgment. But my ministry at Westminster and here has been with kernels of gold and silver and precious stone. And I'm hoping to hear from God well done. Thou good and faithful servant. Let's pray.